You are listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is part two of the story of Veronica Guerin. Last time on Mens Rea, we met the men who ran Ireland's organised crime gangs in the early 1990s. John Gilligan, a small, violent man, had gone from robbing warehouses and factories to armed robberies and tiger kidnappings. He was volatile and vicious and protective of himself, his large 70-acre home-come equestrian centre, and his business, the import of cannabis resin. John Trainer, a.k.a. The Coach, was his associate. He dealt with the financials and had a strong background in fraud. He'd been involved in Irish gangland for nearly as long as it had existed and had long associations with the likes of the General. After Martin Cahill, the General, was shot, the two men really ramped up their drug smuggling and were bringing in hundreds of kilos of hash every couple of weeks as their empire grew, and they accumulated a gang of fixers, enforcers, bagmen, money counters, couriers and dealers of their much sought-after product. It was this world that Veronica Guerin, journalist for the Sunday Independent, strode into. Her approach to reporting crime was to get it from the horse's mouth, even if the horse was known to be a gun-wielding criminal with dodgy morals at best. She'd doorstep these guys and insult them, call them cowards until she finally goaded them into speaking to her. And then she was sure to try and keep on their good sides. They were her product, after all. But she went too far. She went to Gilligan's home, and doorstepped the leader of this new empire, and he beat her for her audacity. But Veronica would not be cowed, and refused to withdraw her statements against the man. She would see him in court for the assault, if he wouldn't answer her questions about where his millions of pounds came from. Veronica's sniffing about their operation pissed Gilligan off, especially as she refused to drop those charges of assault against him, even after a trainer had offered her money to back off and they'd both issued threats. She wouldn't stand down and he didn't know where she got her nerve, but he wanted to be rid of her. Plans slowly began being put into place and the gang began to keep tabs on their reporter friend. A gun that had been quote-unquote imported, a Magnum three fifty seven, was retrieved from the cemetery that it had been hidden in. Russell Warren, who was a bagman for Gilligan, handling his money and sometimes driving his boss around, supplied the gang with their next big-ticket item for the plans falling into place, a Kawasaki 500cc motorbike. Warren had been out one night with a friend, Paul Cradden, who told his mate about a motorbike that Paul's employer, Ian Keith, had stored in a garage out in Dunleary. Paul was annoyed with his boss at the time, 
and to teach him a bit of a lesson, the two men decided that they'd boost the bike. They jumped in Warren's van and relieved Ian Keith of his bike early on the morning of June 8th, 1996, for a lark. Warren was going to toss it out, but he decided to ask his boss if it would be any use to him. Gilligan told him to keep it, fix it up, that he had plans for it. Veronica had mentioned a court date to Trainer casually, at one of their meetings. She was up for speeding, and it was playing on her mind, and so she absentmindedly mentioned it to her star source. Trainer now knew that she would be at Nace Courthouse, and when. He passed this information on to Gilligan, who had it arranged that she would be followed, to see if she was under guard of protection or not. And of course, she wasn't. In June, TD, or Member of Parliament, Tony Gregory, used his dull privilege to name two drug dealers from the floor of Parliament. His constituency was one of those worst affected by drug use, and he was rightly angry that he saw little being done to try and curb the problem. One of the men he named was Tommy Mullen, also known as The Boxer and Veronica used this as an opportunity to publish about him, now that she could manage it without worrying the paper's solicitors about a libel case. On June 16th, she reported her attempts to interview the boxer, and after mildly harassing him as usual, he had agreed to talk to her. He denied being involved in the drug trade and said all his money came from legitimate sources. The Independent printed his picture and his address along with Veronica's story. The next day, the guardie raided his home. Unsurprisingly, threats against Veronica continued. The windows in her car were smashed. On June the 23rd, Veronica reported on Tony Filoni, a major heroin supplier known as King Scum in the 1980s. She had interviewed his wife in the wake of his 20-year sentencing. It was an excellent piece of journalism, by all accounts. Although she was not publishing gangland stories per se, the lines of communication remained open at this point. She was still adamant that she would continue to press charges against Gilligan for his assault back in September, and Trainer was worried that she might name criminals connected with the drugs trade, his business. Trainer did not want to be named or linked to Gilligan. He wanted to keep up the facade that he was just a mildly successful used car dealer and keep his name away from the drugs trade in Dublin entirely. He was worried that Veronica seemed to be outing people lately. Trainer went so far as to apply to the High Court for an injunction against her from naming him in any article. On the 26th of June, 1996, Veronica appeared at Nace District Court for the speeding ticket that had been playing on her mind. She had been caught going 103 miles per hour on the Nace dual carriageway. When she was stopped, not only was she speeding, but she had no tax disc displayed and was not able to produce her insurance documents or her driver's license. She was particularly worried about the appearance as she had previously been stopped for going 104 miles per hour. She thought that she might lose her license, and not only did she need to drive for work, but she loved driving, and she loved driving fast, specifically. 
In court that morning, she managed to get away with a slap on the wrist and a fine, and was delighted as she drove back towards the city centre. She was on her way back to meet with lawyers to deal with the injunction brought by Trainer against her and her paper. Just before 1pm, Veronica stopped her red opal calibre at traffic lights on the Nace Road. She was on the phone to a guard friend of hers. She was leaving a message for him on his answering machine. As she spoke, two men in black leather jackets, wearing helmets, pulled up alongside her on a motorbike. The passenger got off and walked up to her window, smashed it, pulled a gun, and shot her six times. The men had known she was to appear at the court, and the bike, a van, and another car had started tracking her when she left. The bike sped off, followed by the other two vehicles. The men in the vehicles were talking back and forth on mobile phones, reporting Veronica's progress to one another. After the shooting, these were the only cars in the stopped traffic that moved. All the other drivers around the Opal sat in stunned silence, engines still running. A nurse in a nearby car ran to help, but when she checked Veronica for a pulse, she found none. The news broke nearly instantly. Within minutes, the Gardie and Veronica's fellow reporters knew what had happened. By 2pm, her husband had been informed. Shortly after, it was on the news headlines on radios all over the country. At that time, her body still sat in her car, awaiting the arrival of the chief state pathologist, who was at an inquest. Meanwhile, the guys on the bike had fled to the home of one of their associates, Paul Hippo Ward. He was another robber who was friends with Meehan and had met the rest of the gang while in Mount Joy in Port Leash. He lived with Meehan's sister, Vanessa. The gun and bike were left with him when the other two men finally went on their way. Ward decided his best course of action was to toss the gun and cut up the bike and dump it in the Liffey. He waited a few days and then got rid of the evidence. The afternoon of the shooting, flower tributes began to be laid along the railings at Leinster House, where the Irish Parliament sits. It was both a tribute to Veronica and a sort of rebuke of the government for what the public saw as allowing gangland crime to continue unabated. Gilligan was in Amsterdam the day Veronica was shot. He returned the day after and insisted to those who called him, both police and reporters alike, that he had not had Veronica shot and that he felt very sorry for her and her poor family. Trainer was in Mondello Park. Not only that, but he had an accident there, flipping one of his race cars, and he had needed medical treatment. The big players had their alibis. Veronica's death was a shock to literally everyone. Obviously, her family and friends were distraught with the loss of her, but the media at large was reeling from her death. They were joined by the force of the Guardi Shiakana, who now realised that the gangland situation was further out of control than they had thought. Politicians followed suit, panicking that the gangland violence had spilled over out of that secluded world. The public were outraged at the audacity of the crime and that gangland was operating without fear of the consequences. Gangland itself was shaken when they saw the reaction to Veronica's death. 
those outside Gilligan's circle saw that it would have long-lasting effects on their business. They shared the moral outrage of the public, even if it was affected, and would seek to distance themselves from it. The Garda investigation quickly ramped up, with dozens of Gardaí volunteering to help out. The Lucan investigation team was set up out of that station, being the largest one locally, to the Nace shooting site, which would be able to facilitate the ever-growing group of Gardaí. The leadership team was put in place, forensic examinations were made, statements were taken, and then door-to-door inquiries went on. Those in charge immediately felt that Gilligan and his gang were responsible, but they knew that they needed to follow the evidence where it led, and also that there was no point in bringing in those big players at this stage. They would just refuse to answer questions, and it would be a waste of time. They needed to concentrate on other people involved in organised crime and those lower down in the organisations to first gather as much information as possible. Operation Pineapple, which had been set up and running for some months trying to get a handle on the new drug importation setup that Gilligan and his gang had constructed, was able to hand over information that they had gathered on many, but not all, of the key players in Gilligan's organisation. And alibis were gathered. The Guardi noticed early on that when they approached those criminals outside of Gilligan's fold, they were more than happy to help the Guardi with their inquiries, noting that the murder, the assassination of Veronica, had been out of order, wrong, a step too far. They were accommodating when it came to providing the Guardi with any information that might assist them in the investigation. But Gilligan's men? They were another matter. They were hostile, and tended to basically tell the Gardaí who had called on them to fuck off. Politicians also swung into action. They realised that the lack of laws allowing the Gardaí to deal with organised crime and the proceeds of criminal activity were hampering their ability to deal with these gangs, and that this now posed a risk to the public, not just those involved with the crime gangs themselves. The Proceeds of Crime Act was introduced and passed by the Dáil in July 1996, very quickly after the assassination, which would pave the way for the foundation of the Criminal Assets Bureau, a multi-agency operation that tracked down the proceeds of organised crime and seized that property. When news broke about this collective effort between Gardaí, Revenue and the Social Welfare Authorities, Gilligan and his crew scrambled to get their accounts in order. Money was moved about quickly that summer, both in cash, like with Brian Meehan, who had just been stashing it in his dad's house in shopping bags, and from accounts. Geraldine Gilligan alone handled over £200,000. She would later get a bill in the post from the newly established cab for £2.5 million for undeclared income tax. Gilligan flew into a rage over that. On July 1st, Five days after Veronica's death, John Trainer's High Court injunction was heard. Trainer's lawyers had offered an adjournment to the Sunday Independent, but that was rejected. The court heard accusations against Veronica of unprofessionalism and sloppy journalism, but the Independent didn't lodge a defence, and so there, and Veronica's side of the story, was not presented. 
Eamon Dumphy later said that what had happened was that they received legal advice that, one, they should not lodge the affidavit from Veronica that she was going to submit before her death, and two, that the applicant, trainer, would not be allowed to read his affidavit into the court given the circumstances. The legal advice was wrong on both counts in hindsight. The shock of the situation had impaired the decision-making of the editorial team, and so they had followed weak legal advice. In his affidavit, Trainer describes his interactions with Veronica. He described her as a somewhat volatile person who often threatened to publish stories about him in order to get other information she wanted. She was both well-informed, telling him details that only a few would know, and also berating him for information on things he had no clue about. He said that in June, Veronica told him she was going to be writing a story that would tie him to dealing heroin in the city, which he said was completely false. She said herself that she knew the story was false, but she was going to print it anyway because of the lifestyle he lived from his criminal profits. She had cited his boat and his race cars that he had in Mondello Park Racetrack. He pointed out that his share of the boat was £8,000 and that none of his three touring cars were worth more than £7,000. But she said she had to go ahead with the story, despite knowing the damage it would have in Trainer's life, because she was under pressure from her editor. Soon after that initial meeting, she got in touch to tell him that the story would run, but she would say that he was a hash dealer only, which Trainer said was still untrue. Veronica refused to be swayed, and so Trainer went to his solicitor the next morning. There was a lot of back and forth like this, but in the end, Veronica told him that the story was in, and Trainer sought his injunction. After Veronica's murder, Trainer fled to Spain. He denied being in any way involved with her death, but thought that the timing implicated him, and so he left the country. He said, quote, If I was going to have her shot, I wouldn't have spent £3,000 on the injunction before I ordered it. End quote. He admitted to letting people think that he had ordered it, though, in order to boost his street reputation. On the 27th of July, Jimmy Guerin, Veronica's brother and the closest of her siblings, wrote a letter to the editor of the Irish Times. In the letter, it condemned the independent group and its editors, which he believed to be allowing the circumstances which led to Veronica's murder to come about either by not putting into place a system to deal with dangerous criminals, or by just simply telling Veronica no when it came to putting herself into danger for her stories. Suddenly, the whispered rumours that Veronica had little concern for her safety, and neither did her employers, were being aired in the paper of note. The response of the independent group was published shortly after in the Times, and basically said that, Veronica's work and the nature of her approach was part of her personality, that she knew what she was doing and there was no way any editor or any paper would be able to stop the vocational calling of reporters such as her. On top of that, they simply could not have predicted the real threat to her life, despite the fact that there have been two incidents involving guns at her home, one in which she was shot. Graham Turley, Veronica's husband, had not been consulted about Jimmy's letter and did not support its publication. After this, the media shied away from pursuing this angle of the story, both because of Turley's lack of support for it and because it put into the firing line one of the largest newspaper groups in the country. 
Jimmy had a falling out with both Graham and the rest of his family over the public discussion after Veronica's death. Three days after the murder, a man out walking on strawberry beds along the River Liffey spotted what looked like a motorbike dumped in the water. He called the Gardaí to let them know about it, but the officer that was sent out to check it out didn't spot it. A week later, when it was still there, the man decided to pull it out himself. While doing this, he was seen by another member of the public who called him in for acting suspiciously. The bike had been dumped only the day before the man initially spotted it. It had been cut up and brought to the river. Gardie gathered up the pieces and brought it back to the technical bureau to be rebuilt. It was eventually traced to a man named Ian Keith, who had reported it stolen just before the murder. Forensic tests run on the bullets revealed that these, like the bullet Veronica had gotten to the thigh months previously, was a reloaded bullet. The search was on for whoever was manufacturing these illegal recycled bullets, and a number of people were called in for questioning. Hunters and gun enthusiasts from all over the country assisted the Gardee with their inquiries. In the process of this, 12 people were arrested for various firearms charges, and 80 illegal guns were seized. Phone records were also studied from the known gang members, and provided not only evidence of suspicious activity on the 26th of June, but also threw up names of as-yet-unknown people who may have been involved in criminal activity. Amongst those names, Russell Warren was listed, and another phone in the name of Paul Cratton. When the Gardaí investigated these names, they realised that they could be linked with the theft of Ian Keith's motorbike in Dunleary. Things were beginning to come together. Warren was approached by the Gardaí and asked to account for his whereabouts the day of the murder. And of course, he lied. He was put under surveillance. Shortly after the murder, Trainer fled to Portugal, where he stayed while the investigation was ongoing. He wasn't out of touch, though. He spoke to John Gilligan regularly, as well as crime reporter Paul Williams. At one point, Williams visited him in Portugal, where Trainer denied yet again that he had had anything to do with Veronica's death. After his return to Dublin, though, Williams got a call from Gilligan himself. Gilligan said something about how Trainer was blackmailing the reporter with photos of him with some women and that Williams should drop his investigations into gangland crime and Veronica's death. But there were no pictures. After this call, Williams rang Trainer, who admitted that Gilligan had demanded that Trainer set the reporter up. Trainer said that he was genuinely frightened of Gilligan and his behaviour. So he just lied to his boss and said, yeah, he'd gotten pictures of Williams with some girls. Trainer was scared for his family in Dublin. He even admitted to Paul Williams that Gilligan was behind Veronica's murder, but there was no way he would say anything against him to the police. He begged Williams to say nothing out of fear for his family. Williams never printed the story, but he did go to Lucan Garda station and make a full statement. As it became quite clear that it was in fact Gilligan's gang that was responsible, the Gardaí tightened their net. 
they began questioning people who were on the outskirts of Gilligan's organization and the people that they might have confided in. Coordinated sweeps took place where these targets were brought in for questioning all at the same time. People who had never had any contact with the Gardaí before found themselves wakened in the early hours of the morning and pulled in for questioning about friends or a family member. Over the whole investigation, 350 individuals were arrested, 1,500 people were interviewed, and 3,500 statements were taken by the Gardaí. Soon the guards were getting a more accurate idea of how much money the gang was generating. Security was ramped up for the incident room, and the Gardaí involved in the investigation. The supplier of hash in Amsterdam was caught red-handed with drugs that summer, and Gilligan sent his young mistress off to stay with family in Australia for safety. In September, Gilligan returned to Ireland from Holland. He had a few quote-unquote business meetings and attended a birthday party for Geraldine, but they ended up having a blazing row about the mistress, and Gilligan beat her. He stayed that night with his bagman, Russell Warren. The Gardaí considered Warren a weak link, and was soon after placed under surveillance full-time by the Gardaí. They already knew his alibi was bullshit for the day of the murder. He said he'd been with his wife and then at a pub, but neither of those stories checked out. They also knew he'd been involved in handing over money in Amsterdam. It was around this time that the Gardaí also identified a mysterious Paul Conroy from the phone records that they had been given from Operation Pineapple as Charlie Bowden. They found out about his less-than-typical-for-a-career-criminal army background. He, too, was put under surveillance. Later in the month, he was jailed for a week for indecent behaviour back in April. He'd been drinking after a funeral, got mouthy, and decided to masturbate in public. Russell Warren, the weak link, was first arrested on the 30th of September, 1996, while at a pub in Rathgar. He'd been tailed by as many as 12 Gardaí at any given point for two weeks. He was followed into the toilet by two sergeants and arrested there under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act. He went white and nodded his assent at the caution read to him at the urinal in the pub. His wife and the friend he was with were also arrested at the same time. There was a minor panic in the pub at all the commotion until the guardies showed their identification to the rest of the customers. At the same time, five other people closely connected to Warren were arrested and homes were searched. Bundles of cash were found in his father's house, who he'd roped in to sort and count cash for Gilligan. When Warren was questioned, he denied any knowledge of Gearin's murder, but did admit being a bagman for Gilligan and for dealing with his cash. He said he had started out with relatively small amounts, but that that had increased over time. He was told it was from betting and from selling tobacco, but as time went on, he knew it had to be from drugs. He also admitted to knowing Brian Meehan. His family told the Gardaí everything that they knew. They were less than pleased with Warren, but told the Gardaí that they didn't think that he had anything to do with the murder. His dad said Russell was a coward at heart. With Russell Warren out of action, Meehan was concerned with making sure that the cash kept moving from Dublin towards Gilligan, who was in England, 
to keep the flow of money going to Amsterdam and the return flow of drugs to Ireland. He called in all hands to help out and get it ready for Duchy Holland, who was to step in and deliver it over to the boss man. They got £250,000 wrapped and bundled and delivered it in two sports bags to Duchy in a pub. The gang were altogether unconcerned with the police action against them and the fact that one of theirs had been taken in. Holland and Gilligan thought that if they got Warren and put the fear of God in him, he would never take the witness stand, and so it didn't matter if he had spoken to the guardy or had given a statement. Warren and his family were released, and the guardy decided to pursue charges against them for handling the proceeds of crime under the new act introduced earlier that year. As soon as Warren was home from his ordeal with the guardy, Gilligan was on the phone to him. He demanded that Warren fly to London immediately and threatened him. Warren said he couldn't, though. He had no money. So Gilligan ordered him to get money off Meehan and make his way to London, or Gilligan said he'd come over and kill him and his whole family. While Warren was meeting with Meehan and arranging his travel plans to London, the guardie arrived at the offices of Gilligan's solicitor, Michael Hanahoe. Photographers grabbed pictures of them, leaving the law offices with documents, which made the papers. Warren flew to London on the Friday, fully expecting that Gilligan would have him killed while there. He arrived at Gilligan's hotel and was interrogated. The bossman was satisfied that Warren had only been asked about the money and his movements the day of Veronica's death, but that he had said nothing of the gang's involvement in the assassination. Gilligan demanded that Warren move £300,000 to France for him that day on his way home, but Warren told him that he'd no passport. It had been seized by the guardie when he'd been arrested. Gilligan blew up at him and tried to bully him into an attempt to cross the border, but Warren said he just couldn't. Frustrated, Gilligan announced that he'd have to do it himself. He would have to be his own bagman and move his own money for the time being. But he was being watched, carefully, by authorities throughout Europe. Britain, France, Holland and Belgium were all monitoring him as he moved about. The Gardaí felt that they were nearing the time to pull the main players of the gang in, and that they wanted to follow the routine that they had established before, bring people and their associates in, all at the same time. In early October, the Lucan team got word that Bowden was flying to London with his mistress for the weekend on October 5th, and they were afraid that this might mark Bowden's attempt to flee the country. And so the Lucan investigation team were joined by the special branch and the emergency response units, and took Bowden and his family in for questioning while their homes were searched. While being questioned about the murder, Bowden said that he did in fact know Gilligan, Meehan, and the wards. He said he had met them through Paul Mitchell and he was involved in the drug trade. But he knew nothing about the murder, he told them. They put it to him his phone records showed that he was in contact with them all the day of the murder. But he said that that was just business. Initially, Bowden would talk about the drugs, but would not discuss the murder. He was scared. The guardie interrogating him felt that it would only be a matter of time before they got the whole truth out of him, though. 
Bowden agreed to take the guardee out to his hairdressing shop on Moore Street and to a friend's apartment to show them where he was keeping his money. It was a huge amount. He admitted to them that he was in over his head, and while he sat in the back of a squad car, flanked on either side by an officer, he began to tell the story of how he had gotten involved in the drug-dealing empire. But it was still bits and pieces, still not the full truth. From questioning his associates, the guardie learned about a lockup in Green Mount Industrial Estate and got a search warrant for the premises. They went there the next Sunday and took a sledgehammer to the door. Inside was 47 kilos of hash, fake licenses, scales and boxes, and something to cut cocaine with. They also found a list of customers with orders on it and quantities and so on. Jackpot. The officers pulled back to have the scene secured and have forensics called in. Everyone on the list that they found was arrested. When the guardie told Bowden what they had found, he broke down and gave the detectives the full details of how the operation worked, but told them that if Gilligan knew he was talking, he'd be a dead man. He told them about the money and the drugs and the guns. The guardie were surprised to find out exactly how many guns the gang had access to. Bowden told them about a shipment of guns that came in earlier that year, and how it had both a submachine gun and a Magnum 357. He said that the 357 was the gun that they were looking for. He'd cleaned it and gotten it ready. He'd put refilled bullets in it, brass with silver heads, and he said that the tops were turned in rather than coming to a point. He said he thought Dutchie Holland was the hitman. Around the same time, Gilligan was at London Airport with two briefcases full of cash, in the company of another criminal, Michael Cunningham. The two were waiting to board a flight to Amsterdam when he was approached by a customs official, who asked him a number of routine questions. Did he have any cash? He did. 300,000, he said. Gilligan produced documents to show that the money was his and that it came from a bank. He said he was off to Amsterdam to purchase property. Before he knew it, he was surrounded by armed police and customs officers. Cunningham faced the same treatment. Cunningham was arrested and Gilligan was told that the customs officials wanted to make further inquiries into the cash he was carrying. Gilligan decided to brazen it out. He'd gotten away from the clutches of British customs before and thought that, with his receipts and everything, he'd just let the inquiries take their course and he'd walk away with the money intact, even if it took a while to get back. But at five past two that day, Gilligan was arrested, and two guardie from the Lucan team were on their way to London. That night, he was charged with offences relating to drug trafficking and sent to Belmarsh Prison. And officers in Lucan were guided by Bowden through the Jewish graveyard in Dolphin's Barn to where the cache of guns was hidden. The rest of the gang were getting antsy as news trickled out that the guardie were beginning to move in, they wanted to get Shay Ward in particular out of the country. He was a drug addict and would have crumbled under questioning. So his brother, Paul Hippo Ward, got in touch with their dirty cop friend, a man named John O'Neill, and presented him with a passport application. They wanted false documents to get Shay out of the country. But this Garda had come to the attention of the Lucan team, though. 
Ward had once called him 55 times in a day, and they checked his finances and found he was living well beyond his means. He was watched stamping more documents for Paul Ward on the 13th of October. There was no doubt now with the Lucan team that O'Neill was on the take. On October 14th, Meehan, Mitchell and Shea Ward had fled. Dutchy Holland had also left at this stage. Paul Hippo Ward was basically the only one left, and thanks to a bust on a scrapyard, they knew that he was the one who had gotten rid of the bike and the gun. He was spotted near his house in Walkinstown on the 16th of October, and shortly after, he and nine members of his family were arrested. He admitted that he got rid of the bike, but denied any further involvement in the murder. Garda John O'Neill was arrested next. His house was searched and he agreed to be taken to Garda HQ in Harcourt Street for interview. He was eventually arrested for firearms offences and his association with criminal figures, and brought down to Nace Garda Station for further questioning. He resigned his position from the Gardaí the next day and was charged with 16 counts of accepting bribes. He was released on bail at the district court. Paul Ward was charged the next day with conspiracy to murder and remained in custody. The day after, Russell Warren was re-arrested, and this time he told the Gardaí about how he was out in Nace that morning as a lookout, but stopped short of saying that he had seen the shooting. The Gardaí began dismantling the import business of Gilligan's gang and arrested those who had taken delivery of the hash in Cork, including John Dunn, an employee whom Gilligan had paid off, and those who had driven the vans up to Dublin. At this stage, it was becoming clear that tons of hash had come into the country in the last year and a half. In early November, Gilligan's family and trainers' associates were arrested in further swoops. Cab was up and running at this stage, and it began seizing vehicles and money left behind by Meehan, Mitchell, and Ward. On the 20th of November, after the Gilligans had refused to pay the bill sent to them, Revenue headed out to Jessbrook with their faces and reg plates covered to preserve their anonymity and seized horses, equipment, furniture, and electronics from Gilligan's vast estate. Paul Ward was sent to Mount Joy, where he staged a riot and a so-called protest where he took a number of prison guards hostage. Meanwhile, Meehan and Mitchell travelled around Europe. They spent the winter in the Canaries, causing trouble and looking to launder some of their cash into Irish businesses out there, but the local expats weren't having any of it. Eventually, the two met up with Trainer. They were all anxious to find out what was going on with the Guerin investigation. Outwardly, the investigation looked to have slowed down, but the Gardaí and Cab were getting all their documents and evidence in order, and they were also trying to figure out how to present witnesses in the case. Plans were made to introduce the first-ever witness protection program in the state. They needed to protect those that had decided to talk, Bowden and Warren. On the 22nd of January, Gilligan got his first glimpse into the kind of case the Irish authorities were building against him when he appeared in court in London to see if a date would be set for the money laundering charges laid down in October. Officers from CAB and the Lucan team gave evidence of the over £5.5 million Gilligan had gambled in just two and a half years, losing only 600 k or so in that time. Evidence of flights was also presented, showing his movements from Dublin to Amsterdam. 
Gardy worked with British, Belgian, and Dutch authorities to track the shipping of drugs into Ireland. They questioned the players involved on the European end of the supply chain, and also went about gathering information from banks and casinos where Gilligan's money had been changed from punts to guilders. One of the men they spoke to, Martin Baltus, told them about packing up drugs and guns and shipping them to Cork, as well as receiving punts from Gilligan's gang and changing the money at the banks and so on. It filled in the blanks left in the drugs operation. He was even able to identify boxes and firearms that he had shipped over to Ireland. Bowden was eventually released on £60,000 bail, six weeks after he was first lifted. He soon came under pressure from Meehan to try and make sure no one would take the stand against him. Meehan said that he'd fix Bowden and his girlfriend up with some false passports and set them up to start over in Australia. Bowden hadn't been able to get any guarantee of safety from the Gardee, as there had been no approval yet from the Department of Justice about witness protection. He was antsy, and so on the 8th of February, he fled to England with his girlfriend. While there, he was spotted meeting with Duchy Holland, who was under close surveillance. The secret police were even eavesdropping on them. When they spoke, Holland wanted to know if Bowden had implicated him in the murder, given he had been named by the tabloid papers as a hitman. But Bowden denied this. Holland told him he'd done okay, but with that came a veiled threat that if he crossed him, he could end up dead. The Irish police advised UK authorities that they wanted Bowden extradited, and shortly after meeting Holland, he was picked up in a dramatic arrest. He had been standing at a bus stop when he realised both ends of the street were blocked off, and he was swarmed with armed police. He quickly agreed to return voluntarily to Ireland. Cab was also closing in on Duchy Holland. They froze his assets, including his house in British Bay. Shortly after that, his wife was arrested. He was getting tired of all the press saying that he was a hitman and the man who had pulled the trigger on Veronica Guerin, and so made it known that he would like to give an interview. On March 5th, he spoke to Pat Kenny at Jury's Hotel in Kensington, London. He said that he would be happy to speak to the Gardee if they would guarantee to his legal representative that the interview would be videotaped implying that if there was no recording, he thought it likely that the Gardee would falsify statements. He denied that he was a hitman, or that he had anything to do with Veronica's death, saying he didn't even really know who she was. The only reason he'd left Ireland was the article that had appeared in the Sunday World, naming him as the shooter. But after Pat Kenny returned to Dublin, RTE received legal advice that airing the interview would prejudice any case that might be brought against Holland, and to Pat Kenny's fury, the interview was ditched. Duchy was being watched carefully, and the Gardaí were informed when Holland caught a ferry heading towards Dunleary Port on April 8th. They went undercover as car checkers to see if they could spot him on his arrival, and he was eventually caught sitting in the passenger seat of a car being driven by a woman with a small child. He was arrested under the Offences Against the State Act. When the Gardee rang his legal representative to have him come to the station, it turned out that his solicitor was also currently under arrest in relation to the sale of Holland's home. Duchy was stripped and put into a jumpsuit before being brought in for questioning. 
When his personal items were searched, it was discovered that Holland had a number of surveillance and recording devices on him, and he had been planning to use them to attempt to sabotage the investigation. Holland admitted that he had sold drugs, hash only, but refused to say anything about John Gilligan or the death of Veronica Guerin. He was arrested and charged under the Misuse of Drugs Act for trafficking. Meanwhile, Bowden, his girlfriend and kids were being threatened by Meehan, who was getting more and more desperate as the Gardee were making arrests. The remnants of the gang tried a number of times to take out a hit on Bowden and Arbor Hill, but each attempt eventually fell apart. Meehan and Trainer, still at large in Europe, were trying to keep the drugs business going, but found it nearly impossible to keep the supply into the country and to find runners who were trustworthy. On top of that, Cab had been at work on their assets in Europe. Brian Meehan's substantial accounts in European banks had been frozen. In the summer of 1997, the DPP directed that charges be laid against Gilligan and Meehan for the murder of Veronica Guerin, and they were to face 16 further charges for the sale and supply of drugs and possession of firearms. Extradition warrants were sought in secret from the Special Criminal Court. On September 8th, the leaders of the Lucan team went to London with their warrant for Gilligan, and the Crown agreed to set aside their own charges in favour of the Irish ones, which were by far more serious. Gilligan was furious and refused to recognise the court when he was arraigned on the new Irish charges. Meehan was a bit harder to pin down, moving from place to place around Europe, but the Gardaí knew about his secret girlfriend, and they knew about her visits to him in Amsterdam. So, when she was next heading over to visit, they put in place the Dutch and Irish forces necessary to take Meehan in under the extradition warrant. They watched the young woman get onto a train to central Amsterdam, and watched her get off and wait. And then the cops saw both Meehan and Trainer moving towards her. The police followed the three of them as they made their way through the city and eventually made a dramatic move when they hit Dam Square. A Dutch SWAT team surrounded them, put hoods over their heads and pinned their arms behind their backs. Trainer let out a roar and Meehan pissed himself. Without an extradition warrant, Trainer was eventually let go. He was in limbo. His old associates were finished those that were still in business didn't want him around, some had even tried to take out hits on him, and when he told the guardee he'd turn informant, even they weren't interested. Trainer lived in this limbo for a number of years until he made another business deal with another drugs boss who imported his goods to Ireland. Eventually, an immunity deal came through for Charlie Bowden, who was housed in isolation in Arbor Hill Prison. His estranged wife and kids were put into a protection program, which ensured that they were all accompanied at all times by Gardee and wore bulletproof vests, specially tailored to fit them. On the 24th of September 1997, Bowden affirmed his guilty plea to the drugs and firearms offences, and two weeks later, he was sentenced to six years in prison for this. Stringent security measures were taken when he was brought to the circuit court, as there had been threats against him, and even plans to try and blow up the convoy of cars that brought him to and from the court. The building was swept for explosives before he was brought in. 
there was no doubt that his life was in danger for turning grass on his former associates. The next month, Russell Warren affirmed his guilty plea as well, and was sentenced to five years in prison for his part in the drugs gang. On November 18, 1997, Patrick Eugene Duchy Holland stood trial in the Special Criminal Court in Dublin for murder and drugs charges. There would be no jury, only a panel of three judges. Evidence was given of how Holland had been linked to drugs, found in Harold's Cross, that his house had been searched, and that false identity documents had been found. Then evidence was given of Holland's arrest and the bugging devices found on his person. At this point, the trial stalled as submissions were made to the court about the circumstances of Holland's arrest. His defence team argued that the arrest was illegal and that the Gardaí had arrested Holland's legal counsel, his solicitor James Orange, in order to deprive him of legal advice and representation during his questioning. Orange had first come into contact with Holland when he was seeking advice about divorcing his wife and had also given Holland advice on how he should go about returning to Ireland. He was arrested the same morning as his client at his home in Castle Knock, in relation to the sale of Holland's house. Orange told the court that he thought the purpose of his arrest was, however, to stop him from assisting his client. This was a denial of Holland's constitutional rights, and therefore the arrest had in fact been illegal. The prosecution denied this and said that although there was of course a constitutional right to a lawyer, there was no right to a lawyer of one's own choosing. Holland could have availed of the services of any other lawyer if he had wanted when he was arrested. The judges sided with the prosecution and so the trial resumed and finally Supergrass, Charlie Bowden, took the stand. He told the court that Holland had been a customer of his, buying large amounts of hash from him. He told them how he had been present when plans to murder Veronica Guerin were discussed and that he prepared the gun himself. He outlined that under the immunity deal that he had with the state, he would not be charged with conspiracy despite his obvious involvement, but that he had pled guilty to a number of other charges. When Holland took the stand, he denied receiving large amounts of drugs from Bowden and that the only reason he had not immediately cooperated with the Gardee was that they refused to videotape their interviews with him. Luke and Garda station at the time was not equipped to videotape interviews. That's why he had the surveillance equipment secreted in his shoes when he was arrested. He said that evidence given of his conversations with the Gardee, where they said that he had admitted his involvement with selling drugs, was a lie. He said that they had done nothing but talk and say prayers, and then threaten him with the Veronica Guerin file. In closing, the prosecution argued that, between the evidence of Bowden and the admissions made by Holland in custody, there was enough to sustain the charges. The defence argued that Bowden's testimony was unreliable, and the conduct of the Gardaí was inconsistent and proved their clients' assertions that they had fabricated evidence. Mr. Justice Richard Johnson delivered his judgment on the 27th of November. He said that there was ample evidence that Holland had been in the possession of large amounts of cannabis resin with the intent to sell or supply. He further accepted the evidence of Bowden and dismissed the accusations that the Gardaí had made up stories, saying it was not reasonable to think that that was the case. Holland was found guilty. 
The next morning at his sentencing, a full account of Holland's criminal history was outlined to the court. His senior counsel asked for leniency due to Holland's age and the fact that the conviction related to a single incident. He was sentenced to 20 years. On appeal, this was reduced to 12. Paul Hippo Ward's trial was originally calendared for January 1998, but it was delayed when his legal team wanted access to the DPP files and statements that were made. The Gardaí were insistent that giving access to these statements would not only jeopardise the cases, but also put people in danger if they and their statements were identified to the gangsters. The matter made its way to the High Court, where it was eventually decided that Ward's legal team were not entitled to the statements, and so the trial finally went ahead on the 6th of October, 1998. The prosecution opened with an explanation of the circumstances of the murder of Ronica Guerin and stated that Paul Ward had been complicit in the crime. They argued that Ward had not only taken part in discussions and planning of the crime, but had also helped the perpetrators escape and had disposed of the bike and the gun used in the murder. Witnesses from the scene that day gave evidence of finding Veronica in her car. The scene itself was described by the guardie who had been the first responders. Evidence was given of the bullets that were removed from the floor of the car and that they were from a three fifty seven Magnum. Dr. John Harbison gave evidence of the cause of death, shock and hemorrhage. Veronica had injuries to an artery in her chest and both her lungs had been damaged by bullets. He said the first two bullets had been shot from behind her and the rest from the front, showing how the perpetrator had moved around and closer to her as he carried out the attack. Evidence was given of Paul Ward's arrest in Crumlin on the 16th of October 1996 under the Offences Against the State Act, but that he was subsequently released and recharged with the murder of Veronica Guerin on the 9th of October after Bowden gave a statement implicating him. There followed yet another objection to the circumstances of arrest here. The defence argued that Ward had in fact been arrested twice in relation to the same offence, and that custody regulations had also been infringed upon when he was being detained. Evidence was then given by the Garda who arrested him on the 8th of October in the Green Isle Hotel in Clondalkin when he was picked up in relation to an armed robbery. This Garda denied an allegation put to him by the defence that he had slapped the sleeping ward to wake him up. He said that they had arranged a solicitor and a doctor for a ward when he had requested them at the station. He'd been released on the 18th of October at 3.30pm and was arrested pretty much immediately again under the Misuse of Drugs Act. Ward stated that he'd been hit, denied his heroin substitute, and that he had been in no fit state medically to speak to the guardie. But the judge dismissed this once again, and the trial proper continued. Evidence was given by the guardie that Ward had made admissions of getting rid of the bike and gun while in custody on the 17th of October, after he'd had a visit from his girlfriend, but he refused to name Gilligan at the time or tell guardie who had been on the bike. His role in the plan had been to hide the shooters after they had killed Veronica, but they'd left the bike and gun behind and he'd been forced to deal with getting rid of the evidence himself. Then Sergeant Jerry Healy told the court that when he interviewed Ward about the murder, he'd said, quote, I'm only a fucking junkie. I needed the money and I was promised a few bob. When this was being planned, I was asked to let the two men, Patrick Holland and Brian Meehan, into my house and get rid of that fucking gun when they left. I'm not saying anymore. That's it. 
I'm not that big of a fucking idiot. On November 3rd, Charlie Bowden took to the stand again and said that Ward had gotten rid of the gun. The defence concentrated on Bowden's own dealings with the gang and the money that he had himself made. He told the court that he had asked for protection for his family if he were to talk to the guardy, and that he had been granted immunity for the murder. Bowden said he decided to talk due to the guilt he felt for his part in the crime, though he acknowledged that this sounded trite. Bowden told the court that he hadn't known what was going to happen that morning. He thought that they weren't so stupid as to kill a journalist. When he heard the news, he tried to pretend to himself that he hadn't loaded the gun himself. He denied the defense's claim that Meehan had returned the weapon to him after the shooting, saying it was ridiculous to suggest that Meehan would have carried a recently shot gun up Henry Street and into Moore Street, where he was regularly stopped by the guardie, to drop the gun off at Bowden's hairdressers on Moore Street. Evidence was also given by Senan Maloney, Bowden's neighbour, who happened to also be a journalist. He remembered coming home after covering Veronica's shooting that day to find that there was a party in full swing in Bowden's house. He realised that it was a celebration party. It wasn't unusual for noise and partying and loud music to make its way over from the Bowdens. It was a regular occurrence, but this time was particularly distressing after the loss of Maloney's colleague. When Paul Ward took to the stand himself, he accused Bowden of lying, saying that the guardie had tried to get him to tell tales and to make up stories too, but that he had refused them because he didn't know anything about Ms. Guerin's murder. He didn't believe that anyone would have a journalist killed over six months in prison. He said it was all made up and Bowden should be the one in the dock. His girlfriend Vanessa Meehan described being subjected to threats from the guardie who yelled at her and at Paul to confess his involvement in the murder. She described being confused and frightened and said that she was begging Paul to tell them where the gun was so that she could go home. They terrorised her, she said. Again, the prosecution argued in closing that Ward's own admissions, together with Bowden's statements, were enough to put Ward away. Furthermore, they said, telephone records also tended to support the prosecution's version of events. And again, the defense team argued that Bowden could not be relied upon to give truthful statements, and that the veracity of the alleged statements made to the guardie by their client was also contested. They argued that if the defendant had been a man from, quote, another walk of life, that it would not be reasonable to send him to jail on the evidence presented. On the 27th of November, Mr. Justice Barr delivered his judgment. He said that the events surrounding the admissions allegedly made by Ward to the guardie, particularly in and around the time that his girlfriend was present, and another time when his mother was there, seemed to have been made under extreme psychological pressure, and therefore in contravention of his constitutional right to fair procedure. He could not say whether the admissions were true or not, but said that the defendant deserved the benefit of the doubt, and therefore held that those admissions were inadmissible against Ward. However, he found that Bowden's testimony was truthful, and said that on that basis it was clear that Ward had been an accessory before the fact, and was guilty of the charges before him. He was given a life sentence. Shortly after, he received a further 12-year sentence for his actions during the Mountjoy prison riot. 
On the 8th of September 1998, Brian Meehan was finally on his way back to Ireland after a lengthy battle for extradition. He was surrounded by heavily armed Dutch police as the paperwork was exchanged and he was led, with a hood over his head, onto the small plane that would fly him home in the company of members of the Lucan investigation team. When they touched down at Dublin, they were met by the emergency response unit and armed guardee, and Meehan was formally charged with the murder of Veronica Guerin, as well as other charges relating to drugs and guns. There were 18 charges in total. He was brought to the Special Criminal Court and then ferried out to his new home in Portleash Prison. Brian Meehan's trial in the Special Criminal Court began on the 2nd of June 1999. Evidence was given by Gardee, who traced the route they alleged Brian Meehan took from the scene of the crime on the Nace Road to Paul Ward's house. They did it a few times, and the time it took ranged from 4 minutes 20 seconds to 7 minutes 34 seconds. Pretty quick. A friend, now housed with Bowden and Warren in Arbor Hill, gave evidence of Meehan telling him that he had been involved in the shooting. And Juliet Bacon gave evidence of money that her boyfriend, Charlie Bowden, began bringing home to be counted, and how Meehan had asked her for information on the investigation while he was abroad and Bowden was in jail. She also described threats that Meehan had made against her. Juliet said that she felt guilt about her part in the drugs and the murder, and she said she couldn't forget it. She described for the court how she now lived under 24-hour protection since her boyfriend Charlie Bowden started talking. Bacon also denied to the court that she had thrown a party the night that Veronica was murdered. Evidence was also given about how Meehan would collect consignments of drugs from Cork and bring them up to Dublin. Then Bowden took the stand again. When questioned by the defence, he told the court that he had no contact with the media after signing something akin to a non-disclosure agreement with the Department of Justice, but evidence was presented that he had been in touch with journalists before the signing of that document. He said he had thought about writing a book or screenplay based on his knowledge, but that nothing had come of it in the end. The defence was trying to show that Bowden would benefit financially from telling his side of the story and giving evidence against their client. Bowden described the conversations leading up to the shooting, and he had insisted that he thought the reporter was just to be frightened. He said he had prepared the gun, and that Meehan was on the motorbike, but that another man had been chosen to do the shooting. Gilligan wasn't impressed with Meehan's marksmanship, apparently, and the man who would be the shooter owed Gilligan a favour. That guy was also more accustomed to that kind of work, apparently. After that, Russell Warren took the stand and described his role in the gang as a bagman, as one of the lower downs who counted money and transferred it to Europe. He said he also sometimes drove Gilligan around. He told the court about the motorbike that had been stolen and how he had done some work on it to fix it up and make it ready for the job. He described his actions that day, that he had been in a van following Veronica Guerin's car, and that he had seen the shooting. He said he was shocked. He thought that there might be one or two shots, maybe, but that in reality the assassin had emptied the gun into the woman. When it happened, he'd gotten out of the van in shock and thrown up. It was only then he really realised what he'd been part of. He told the court how he had called Gilligan from a slip road just after to tell him that the job was done. After that, he continued counting and moving money for Gilligan. 
The next day, Veronica's last call made from her mobile phone was played to the court. Remember, she had called a guard a friend of hers and gotten his answer machine. The call was 18 seconds long and ended abruptly with the sound of two loud shots. Detective Garda Rory Corcoran took the stand to give evidence that after Veronica's murder, he had picked Meehan up for driving without insurance, and during the course of that conversation, Meehan had said he had information about serious crime in Dublin. He then wrote his mobile phone number on a packet of cigarettes and handed it to the guard. Meehan, sitting in the dock, lost the plot at this, the idea that he may have been willing to rat on his colleagues. He shouted out, That never fucking happened! A prison officer intervened as Meehan tried to remove a shoe and throw it at the detective on the stand. An objection was raised by the defence that the three main witnesses against their client were all housed together in Arbor Hill Prison, implying that they were able to coordinate their testimony against Meehan. But the prosecution pointed out that they were unable to be left in general population due to the risk to their lives, that they and their families were in witness protection, and it made sense that they were all to be housed together. This argument was dismissed by the judge. The day that the prosecution summed up, Meehan's father went home and later answered a knock at the door. A man stood there and asked for directions, and when Mr. Meehan went to answer, a gun was pulled and Kevin Meehan was shot in the shoulder. He was brought to the hospital, but his injuries were found to be not serious, and Meehan Sr. was back in court as a show of support for his son on the next day. No one has ever been charged with that incident. In closing, the defense again argued that the witnesses against Meehan were unreliable, and even went so far as to say that Bowden was attempting to draw attention away from his own true involvement in the killing. They said that he was in fact the shooter and was placing blame on everyone but himself. Mr. Justice Frederick Morris delivered his verdict on the 29th of June and stated that he accepted that Warren's evidence about the motorbike and then following Veronica's car in a van was the truth, though it did need to be treated with caution, given that it was accomplice evidence. Strangely, he rejected Bowden's evidence and said that he felt it may have been massaged to make it more saleable in future for books and so on. It was not to be trusted, nor was Juliet Bacon's. That said, he believed what the two had to say about Meehan's involvement in the drugs trade and possession of guns. So Meehan was guilty of conspiracy to murder on the basis of Warren's evidence and for the possession of guns and drugs on the basis of Bowden's testimony. In addition to life for the murder charge, he got 20 and 12 years for involvement in the drugs trade and 5 and 10 years for firearms possessions. He was transported out to Portleash Prison to serve his time. On Thursday, February 3rd, 2000, Gilligan finally ran out of options, trying to quash or delay his extradition order back to Ireland, and was collected by the army at a small air force base. He was brought by armed guard in an army plane to Baldonnell Military Airfield, where he was met by a scrum of photographers, and transported from there up to the Special Criminal Court for his first hearing in a convoy of cars, passing where Veronica Guerin had been shot on the way. 
After he was allowed to change into his own clothing from the jumpsuit he had been wearing in the English prison, he took to the dock where he informed the court that he would be representing himself. He requested that his legal documents be released from the guardee to his custody. He was told that he could apply for bail, but responded, quote, I think bail would be out of the question, wouldn't it? End quote. He said it would take him eight weeks to go through the book of evidence and prepare submissions, and on that basis, his next date was set for April the 3rd. That day, he told the court that there was no way he would have been convicted of the assault on Veronica, and that he had made no threats against those who were set to testify against him. He also asked that the drugs charges and the murder charge be tried separately, as he didn't think that he would be able to handle both cases himself but by the end of the hearing, he told the judges that he was anxious at the idea of representing himself and asked for legal aid. After two changes of legal teams, Gilligan's trial got underway on the 4th of December, 2000. Initial submissions were made that Gilligan was in custody unlawfully and that an inquiry into the circumstances of his extradition from the UK was required, along with an assertion that the evidence that was to be given from three protected witnesses should be inadmissible, as they had been given deals that were dependent upon their performances in court. Both arguments were rejected. Senior counsel Felix McEnroy gave evidence of the phone conversation that he had witnessed between Gilligan and Guerin the day after her assault. He had been convinced to waive client privilege by Graham Torley and the president of the Bar Association, given the extreme circumstances. He also described how he knew Gilligan and how he knew his voice and mannerisms, having worked for him in the mid to late 80s. Soon the Christmas recess was upon the court, and Gilligan used his time off to his advantage. He decided to try and intimidate witnesses that were to appear against him, particularly Martin Baltus, who had dealt with Gilligan in Holland, and who was up to give testimony in the new term. Baltus had initially been eager to help the Gardaí with their inquiries, and give evidence against Gilligan, but in early January he had a change of heart, it would seem. He was refusing to travel to Ireland. There had been threats to his family, and his daughter had been abducted for a night. He would not be appearing in court. Evidence was given by Garda witnesses on how it came about that Charlie Bowden gave a full account of the drugs trade and subsequently the murder of Veronica Guerin, and that after speaking with them, the Supergrass was terrified that the gang would find out that he had turned tout. John Dunn gave evidence of his role in Gilligan's gang, and how he had arranged to have cannabis and so on shipped into Cork and transported up to Dublin. He said he had done it out of pure greed, for the money. He also outlined the deal that he had been given with the Department of Justice, and that he would be in a witness protection program upon his release from prison. Next, Russell Warren took the stand. He again outlined his deal with the state, which would place him in the witness protection program upon his release from prison. He told the court that he had met with Gilligan over a hundred times, and that when he had first spoken to the guardie, he had not been entirely truthful with them. He initially tried to keep himself, and Gilligan, out of the murder plot, but he finally admitted to them that Gilligan had ordered him to follow Veronica's car that day and that he had called Gilligan when the shooting had been done. When he described his role in the murder, he broke down in tears and had to be excused from the stand to compose himself. 
Bowden gave evidence of the drugs operation of the gang and Gilligan's leadership of it. Paul Williams, crime correspondent for the Sunday World, gave evidence of the conversations he had had with Gilligan after Veronica's murder, including the time Gilligan had attempted to blackmail him. When the prosecution's case closed, the defence yet again argued that Gilligan was unfairly held in the UK and extradited to the Republic. They also once again stated that the testimony of the witnesses used against Gilligan was unreliable. March 15th was the day that the two-hour judgment was read, and the most notable part of that lengthy summing up of the trial was the statement that uncorroborated accomplice testimony could not be used as the sole evidence to convict someone in this country. John Dunn's evidence was accepted as reliable, but the court could not say the same for the evidence of Warren and Bowden. Gilligan was found guilty of 11 drugs charges laid against him, but the evidence presented for the charge of murder rose merely to the level of suspicion, the court said. He was acquitted of the murder charge. The court broke for lunch, and Gilligan rang his wife in Jessbrook to arrange a car to collect him from the court. He figured he would be walking out of the building a free man that day. After the recess, he was sentenced to a staggering 28 years for his drug offences. Gilligan's legal team immediately gave notice of their intention to appeal the sentence. He was less than pleased. On the 25th of March, at a meeting between him, his legal team, and Brian Meehan, Gilligan lost the plot with a senior prison officer. He'd asked for the tuck shop in Port Leash to be opened specifically for him, so that he could buy snacks. When this was refused, he assaulted the officer, who had to be treated in hospital for injuries to his head. There was another incident when he was to be strip-searched, where he made threats against officers and their families. Gilligan was to be punished for his actions and sent to what was known as the bunker for two months and lost privileges like phone calls, visits, and access to the tuck shop. He was outraged and took the matter to the High Court, arguing that the rules violated his constitutional rights. This was, of course, rejected by the court. Gilligan would have to follow the rules, like everyone else. A few weeks after Gilligan's sentence, Charlie Bowden and Russell Warren were released and relocated outside of the state. Cab began moves to confiscate Gilligan's assets, estimated at 14.2 million euros. Under threat was Jessbrook, his kids' houses, cars and bank accounts. John Dunn had been initially relocated to Cork rather than abroad, but was in 2002 approached by men who asked him to consider withdrawing his testimony against Gilligan. He quickly informed his guard minders and was transferred outside the state. On March 5th, 2002, Paul Ward's appeal was heard. His team argued that Bowden's evidence could not and should not have been used as the basis upon which their client's conviction rested. It was uncorroborated accomplice evidence and would not stand up alone to support the conviction. Their argument was accepted by the three-judge panel. He was still serving his 12-year sentence for his part in the riot in Mount Joy, though, and was not immediately released. Later in the year, his appeal for that sentence was heard and reduced by two years. He would have only two more years to serve. Meanwhile, Gilligan had been ordered by the Special Criminal Court 
to pay 17 million euro to revenue within 12 months on the basis that he had imported 27,530 kilos of cannabis resin and everything he had received from its sale was due back to the state. No leave to appeal was allowed on any of the drugs charges. Brian Meehan's original appeal for his murder conviction was rejected by the courts in 2006. After that, he brought a further appeal under Section 2 of the Criminal Procedure Act in 2015. In this, he argued that there was newly discovered evidence that had come to light in the 2001 trial of Gilligan that neither he nor the prosecution had been aware of, and that there had been a miscarriage of justice in his case. But the Court of Criminal Appeal dismissed his motion to quash his conviction, stating that bringing the appeal was in fact an abusive process, and that there was no new evidence. He is still serving his life sentence in Port Leash. He most recently came under scrutiny when, after acting suspiciously at visiting times, he was searched by prison guards who found vials of methadone on him. This was strange, they said. Meehan, though most certainly the man in charge of his landing in the prison, was not a drug user himself. He had other people to bring in that sort of stuff and sell it on for him. The authorities still don't understand why it was that he had the drugs on him, but either way, he was sent to a more restricted section of Port Leash, with fewer privileges available to him. Meanwhile, Trainer continued swanning around Europe until he was arrested in a Dutch and British operation to crack down on organised crime. He ended up being extradited to the UK to finish off the sentence he had skipped out on in the early 90s, and was released in September 2012. He said at that time that he would never return to Ireland, not because he was worried that he would be arrested in relation to Veronica Guerin's murder, but rather because he believed he faced a rather large tax bill and might be sent to prison over that. It was reported in 2013 that he was in the process of writing a book, which he wanted released only after his death. There's a whole chapter about John Gilligan in there, he said. By posthumously publishing it, he wants to set the record straight. Despite his assertions, though, John Trainer was spotted returning to Ireland in February of this year, 2018. He has lived in Kent, Margate specifically, for a long time, but he came home when his father died recently. He attended the funeral in Nace, County Kildare. The guardie did have a presence at the funeral, just to make sure that nothing untoward happened, but they kept out of the way and out of sight, and the funeral took place peacefully. Paul Hippo Ward was eventually released from Portleash for taking part in the prison riots in 2005. He continues to live in Dublin, and reports say he is no longer a heroin addict. He got married to his childhood sweetheart in August 2009. The reception was held in the swanky Louis Fitzgerald Hotel, a short distance away from where Veronica Guerin was murdered. He has insisted that he has gone straight and has managed to keep a relatively low profile since his release, although it is not clear what job, if any, he has, and he is not currently in receipt of social welfare. He was charged with drink driving in November 2010 and was jailed again in October 2016 for driving without insurance for four months. In 2017, he gave evidence before the Dublin Coroner's Court after his nephew died on a night out with him. They had been drinking and staying again in the Louis Fitzgerald, and after a night of partying, Paul Ward awoke to find his 35-year-old nephew dead on the floor. He denied that they had been taking drugs or that there were any drugs in the room, 
but diamorphine and cocaine were found on his nephew's body, and the deceased also had diazepam, heroin, cocaine, alcohol, and levamisole in his system. The coroner ruled it death by misadventure. As for Gilligan, he was released from Port Leash on October 15, 2013, after serving 17 years of his 20-year sentence. He initially moved to the countryside out to Roscommon, but hopped between addresses in Dublin and the UK as well. He and his now properly separated wife, Geraldine, expended a lot of effort fighting the seizure of Jessbrook and their lavish house by cab. When they lost control over Jessbrook and the equestrian centre, they fought tooth and nail to retain ownership of the adjacent bungalow. They were also fighting to hang on to two further properties in Dublin. That legal battle lasted 16 years. Three months after regaining his freedom, there was a botched attempt on Gilligan's life. Two armed men arrived at the halfway house pub, the one near the Phoenix Park, looking for Gilligan. But they got the wrong pub. Gilligan was over on Black Horse Avenue with the hole in the wall. When the men realised that he wasn't on the premises, they jumped back on their motorbike and discarded their weapon. Gilligan laughed off the attempt, even when the guardie warned him that his life was in danger. Then again, in 2014, he was shot in his brother's home in Clondalkin, when an armed man burst into the house and chased after him. Gilligan tried to take shelter in the bathroom, but ended up being shot a number of times. He had shots to the abdomen and leg and suffered a broken hip. On the 22nd of July this year, 2018, he was pictured on a flight to Alicante in Spain. He was nodding off on his way to a holiday. He apparently spends his time now between Spain, Dublin and England with his new girlfriend, an English lady he met while on a previous holiday in Alicante. As part of my research for this story, I read Paul Williams's book, Evil Empire. He wrote it just a few years after the events involved, and he knew many of the key players in the story, given his position as crime writer for the Sunday World, and effectively Veronica Guerin's colleague, albeit from a competitor paper. His initial thoughts seemed to be that in the wake of Veronica's murder and the establishment of CAB, that Gangland Ireland was effectively over. But unfortunately, by the time the trials rolled around, he was of a different opinion. New bosses and dealers simply filled the voids created and set up their own businesses. Gangland in Dublin remains a problem, and whole families of people who were quote-unquote known to the Gardaí engage in an on-again-off-again street war of shootings and reprisals. One good thing to emerge, though, was the Criminal Assets Bureau. Up until that point, criminals could be jailed and then upon release were able to enjoy the proceeds of their crimes. Now these ill-gotten gains are the property of the Exchequer. That said, it does beg the question, wouldn't it be easier all round to cut out the middleman and rid the country of drug-related gangland crime by legalising the stuff? People are going to buy drugs. At least this way, some of the criminality and violence could be avoided. But hey, I'm just a podcaster. Thanks for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, you can head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. You can get in touch on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Mensreapod, M-E-N-S-R-E-A-P-O-D, 
where you'll also find pictures and links to articles about the characters you've heard about in the current episode. Or why not shoot me an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. I love your feedback, and I love hearing from you, so get in touch. A special thank you to our supporters on Patreon. A big thanks this time round to new patrons Angela Stiles, Penelope Booker, Khalifa, and Maggie James. Thank you so much, guys. Your support means the world to me. If you want to brighten my day, or get some nifty podcast swag, or have access to early release, ad-free, or bonus mens rea content, head on over to Patreon today. I'm exceedingly grateful for every cent. Thanks also to some of our recent five-star reviews. Thanks for your five stars, Hilo Faz from Australia. Thanks to Yorkshire Lass from Canada. I'm glad I can keep you occupied during work. And thank you to Red Bell Pepper for your five stars as well. You heard about us from the Murderly Mashup. I'm so happy to be part of such a great network. So thank you guys for all of your five stars. Do head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review if you get a minute. I do read them all and they are a great boost and help motivate me to keep going. As always, with thanks to Rona McHugh for help with sound. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources used for today's episode can be found on our website, www.mensreapod.com, and in the show notes, do check them out. Our theme song is Quinn Song, First Dance by Kevin MacLeod. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. (laughs) 